Would you turn your attention to the reading of God's word from Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And I would like you to read this out loud with me. I trust that you have your device, your Bible, or the screen will work. But let's start reading together, out loud together, in verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I'm grateful to God for the opportunity to bring you his word this morning. And I'm also grateful to the elders who were very kind to me. They are allowing me to preach my favorite passage out of my favorite book in the Bible. And it's my favorite for a couple of reasons, but most noteworthy is that I think in all of Scripture, this is a bold statement, but I think in all of Scripture, this passage is perhaps the most succinct statement of the power and the purpose of the gospel. And so it's very dear to me and it's very dear to us that do biblical counseling because this is sort of a go-to verse for us. It helps us to remind people of who they are in Christ and what Christ has done. And so I pray that this morning it will be an encouragement to your hearts as well. The mission of our church is to glorify God by being and making disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a theme in our men's Friday morning study for about six months now as we've been going through Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer wrote this back in 1937 as the nation of Germany was headed toward, well, you know what it was headed toward. And it was a very difficult time. And so today we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and his writing to a pastor on the island of Crete and what he has to say to us about discipleship. Now the island of Crete, was an immoral place. It was a very worldly place. And so Paul was very intent as he established churches there to set leaders, to set elders over the churches to help establish order and to help teach people the truth of God's word. This was especially important on the island of Crete because false teachers had begun to pop up within the churches. And their teaching sounded plausible, but it was actually in opposition to the gospel. So today we want to focus on Titus and the message that it has for us, one of them being being a Christian in a non-Christian culture. The bulk of the book of Titus is devoted to this. It's devoted to the inseparable link between belief and behavior, or we could say between faith and practice. Let's break that into two biblical truths. First, what we think, what we come to believe and value, drives what we do. What we think, what we come to believe and value, drives what we do. That's true for anybody and everybody. The second truth is that the gospel changes the way we think and act. The gospel changes, it literally changes the way we think and act. And of course, this is true for Christians. 
In today's passage and in throughout the book of Titus, we're going to see that these truths lead us to three particular things that are going to be helpful to us. First, we're going to focus on Christ's costly gift to us. Second, we're going to focus on the life-changing benefits that we receive from his gift. And then finally, we're going to look at our grateful response to that gift. So the gift, the benefits, and our grateful response. Let's start by looking at verse 11, where we just read, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Let me start right off by saying that passage does not teach universalism. It does not teach that everyone is saved. It does not teach that all roads lead to heaven. And we know this. We know this because there are plenty of passages throughout God's word that teach that some are saved, but many are not. And second, we know that from the context of the passage just before what we read, namely chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul goes on to say that the gospel is for all kinds of people. It's for old people, young people. It's for men and women. It's for slaves. Second, grace. Grace is kind of a friendly, happy, churchy word, isn't it? It's kind of like the idea of a warm sun sending this gift of rays, and we just sort of bask there and take it all in and enjoy it. It's sort of a passive thing. No, no, it's not that at all. It is absolutely not that. The passage here is very clear. The word that Paul used for appeared carries with it a great invasion of power and strength. It's kind of like a superhero coming in at the last minute to save people in a time of need. So grace in this sense comes to us with great power and a great sense of help and hope. And again, the brevity of this statement doesn't draw us into its significance until we combine chapter, verse 11 with verse 14, where we read, the grace of God has appeared, and I would say in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. We hear that a lot, don't we? Oh, she really gave herself to that relationship. Oh, he gave himself in that game. He put his all into it, even though they lost. And if that's the way we think of it, we might think of giving as um, something that Christ did that makes him a good friend, a faithful teammate. No, 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 no. This statement is so much more than that. This brief statement is meant to draw our attention, our full attention, into the extravagant cost that Christ paid for our salvation. Biblically, grace is this. It's God's unmerited favor to those who deserve his judgment and wrath. It's his unmerited favor in Christ to us when we really deserved his judgment and wrath. Christ's gift turned aside God's judgment and wrath against us and our sins. And it cost him everything. Everything. I want to take a few minutes and really press in on that. Press in on what Paul said in Philippians 2, that Christ emptied himself for us. I really want you to understand how fully Christ gave himself for us. The Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said it like this in his book called A Body of Divinity. He said this about Christ. He was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin 
that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in a manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven to bring us to heaven. That the ancient of days should be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in a cradle, that he who rules the stars should suck the breast, that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman and of that woman which himself made, that the branch should bear the vine, that the mother should be the younger than the child she'd bear and the child in the womb bigger than the mother, that the human nature should not be God, yet one with God. And then he invites us, come and worship. Have you thought deeply about this costly gift? Have you thought about Christ's scandalous birth to an unwed couple in a remote stable? Have you thought about how in his infancy he gave himself to be diapered, nursed, and carried around? In his childhood, he was trained by his parents. He submitted to them. Have you thought about how he gave himself for us in his temptation before Satan or in his ministry how he was misunderstood by his disciples, how the crowds pressed in, drawn in by his miracles. And remember the religious leaders of his time? Remember how he endured their threats and their accusations? Do you remember how he suffered for us in the Garden of Gethsemane as he contemplated the crushing weight of our sins and the separation from the Father? And he prayed Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Think about how he submitted to Pilate and the Roman authorities in his mock trial, how he made no defense. Think about his arrest, the abandonment of his closest friends, his incarceration, his humiliation, the flogging, the pain, and ultimate death of his crucifixion. Yet, he went like a lamb to the slaughter. In all of this, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. He became poor that through us, his poverty might become our riches. John's Gospel in chapter 21 tells an interesting story about Christ after he was resurrected. You may remember this. Jesus is on the shore, and his apostles are once again out fishing. They recognized Jesus, and when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And if that wasn't striking enough, Jesus says, Come, have breakfast, as if nothing had happened. I find this account astonishing. First, in order to cook the fish, Jesus had to start the fire. He had to prepare the fish. He had to use the hands that had just been impaled on the cross for our ransom and prepare this meal. Picture Jesus washing the grime off his hands as he did that, even as he washed our sins away on the cross. Isn't this the fullness of the incarnation? 
Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one for whom and by him all things exist. He got his hands dirty. How fitting with his mission to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This quote by Gabe Fleur gets right to the point. He says, not only did the God-man get his hands dirty for our sake, but he also came to serve. His service for sinners like us found its apex in the awful tree. But even after he had secured our release from the bondage of sin, he continued to serve. He continued to serve to the point of preparing a meal for his tired friends. Let that sink in. God made breakfast. God's grace was costly. It was his precious gift born out of the Father's deep love for us and his faithful obedience to the Father. And his grace changes the way we think and the way we act. Do you see it? God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, opening the floodgates to our blessings and our benefits. Let's continue in verse 11 and 14, and let's look, at about our, look, let's look at our many benefits in Christ, past, present, and future. Verse 11 says, clearly, we are saved. Praise God from that. We were plunging toward death and eternal despair. But then, but God, don't you love the but gods in the Bible? We were headed in the wrong direction, but God grabbed us. Paul goes on to say in verse 14, he says, but we have been redeemed by Christ's blood. Do you understand the idea of redemption? It's the payment of a ransom for a hostage. It's interceding for someone that has no possible way of extricating themselves from their prison, from their confinement. It's a last resort for a person who's in a hopeless situation and when we were dead in our sins with no hope in the world, Christ ransomed us from the grave. Glory to God. Amen. He ransomed us from the grave and he gave us new life. But that's not all. 14 goes on to say that we've been purified. Purified, forgiven because of Christ's faithfulness. We are looked at by God as if we had never, ever sinned. We are viewed by God as if, as if we're wrapped in the perfect righteousness of Christ. We're now fit to be in God's creation. We are a new creation. And if it isn't enough that we've been redeemed and purified, Paul goes on to say that we've been adopted. That's you. That's all of us in Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord of your life, you become his personal treasured possession. You're changed. That's not easy believism. That's not naming and claiming theology. That is the truth about God's powerful presence and activity in you and in your life. So our salvation is grounded in the past work of Christ for us. Paul sums this up beautifully in our assurance of pardon that Jason read a little while ago in Titus 3, 4 through 7. Paul says that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly. The idea is that it's a deluge. It's a flood. It's not a sprinkling. It's not a dribbling. It's us being overwhelmed by a tidal wave of God's grace through the Holy Spirit, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says here that we've been justified by God's grace. This completed work of regeneration, of renewal and reconciliation with God is the first aspect of our salvation. And the Bible uses a big word to describe it. It's called justification. It means that God declares us not guilty. It means he forgives our sins. And again, he sees us covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification means that you have a new nature and you have a new identity. You really are a new creation. You have a new nature and a new identity. Well, there's only one thing to do if that's true, and that's to respond out of gratitude. Paul in verses 12 and 13 takes us through the process of responding in gratitude. He says, God's grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here again, we see that God's grace in Christ is active in our lives. It's not passive. It's not some vague, undefined benefit hovering in the background, some theological concept. It's the truth that it's actively training us right now to live godly lives as we wait attentively for Christ's return. So because of justification, there's a progression that comes out of that. There's three things that that lead us to. First, and again, we saw this in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, we begin to think about ourselves differently. We begin to be reminded that we are a new creation. We're not the old, we're the new. God's loving kindness, Paul says, has been poured into us. We're washed clean of our sins. We have a new life. We've been adopted by God. We're co-heirs with Christ, and we're beneficiaries of God's inheritance for us. Friends, we have a new identity. Let's thank God, for we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live. Christ lives in us, and the life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Amen. And because of that rich flood of gifts in the Holy Spirit, we begin to believe things differently. We begin to value things differently as the Holy Spirit works in our minds and in our hearts. Because we're, we've been purified, we see ourselves and we see others differently. We are God's people. Think of it. We are his treasured possession. Not only do we think th differently, not only do we believe and value things differently, but out of that, we act differently. We're called to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives today. And it's also that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his great and marvelous light. In our counseling ministry, we see so often that people forget these things. Being a new creation, hear me on this, being a new creation means that we're no longer broken. We're whole. We're not damaged goods, so we can live differently. 
remember, salvation is not just fire insurance. It's not just a one-and-done, get-out-of-hell-free card. It's something that starts a new life and a new process in us. It changes the way we think, what we believe, what we value, and how we act. And we live out our faith. And as we do that, we get progressively disconnected from our prior life. We move farther and farther away from our old nature and our sins. The Bible has another $3 word for this. It refers to it as sanctification. This is what Paul means when he says in Philippians 2 that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We are to cooperate with God in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's our training program as Christians. Verses 12 and 13 are Christ's call to each of us to drop our nets and to follow him. It's an invitation to training and waiting. Training and waiting are the life of a disciple. Training and waiting are hard. Training and waiting cost us time, attention, and patience. After more than 40 years of marriage, Marianne and I have a new puppy. Her name is Maple, and you can ask me afterwards why her name is Maple, but I don't have a picture of her, but trust me, she's adorable. And so we are in the process of training her. Or maybe it's the other way around, I'm not sure. In fact, I, I am actually really sure, but we're getting it, and I think she's pleased with us. <laughs> Nevertheless, our plan is to teach her that many things for her are yes. Yes to your food. Yes to taking a walk. Yes to playful time. But at the same time, we have to tell her that some things are no. No to jumping up. No to behaving like a piranha. <clears throat> so there's much repetition, and we're waiting to see who's going to win this battle of wills. But uh, this kind of training is familiar to us in other ways, isn't it? Think about a group of Marines on a Navy ship heading across the ocean for whatever their mission might be. What do they do? They train and they wait. And they train and they wait and they train and they wait. Think about firefighters. After they've gone out on an incident, they come back and they've cleaned all their gear and they're back in the firehouse, they're waiting for the next incident. What do they do? They train, they wait, they train, and they wait. We, as disciples of Christ, are in training. The word that Paul uses here is the idea of training up a child, of coaching a child to grow and to mature. And that's fundamental to all of human life and growth, and it's equally foundation to our life as Christians. We are in training. Verse 12 says that God's grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How is God's grace training us? Well, it trains us to say yes, and it trains us to say no. Broadly speaking, it trains us to say yes to things like inviting Christ's active presence into our lives, into every area. It trains us to read and study and know God's word and to cling to it. 
It trains us to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And it trains us to say yes to the hard work of practice. Again, from verse 12, we are called to three areas of practice. First, we're called to practice self-control. That's self-explanatory, I think. We're also called to practice upright living. That's different from self-control in that it has more to do with our relationship with other people and also how we live before them. So we practice self-control, we practice upright living before and with others, and then we practice godliness. That's our relationship, that's our interaction with God. Paul opened this very letter in verse one of chapter one with a call to practice obedience to God's word. He said, the knowledge of truth accords with godliness. That's our call to say yes to training, to say yes to practice. But Paul goes on to say that we have to renounce, we have to say no to ungodly and selfish passions. This word renounce means to deny. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he says that we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. It's the hard work of denying what the world and our appetites say that we deserve. It's actually saying no to things that we value and enjoy more than Christ, things that we've allowed to shape our identity more than Christ. That's been pointed out to me painfully throughout my life because at times I have over-identified with my career. I've made much of that. I've made much of pursuit of health and fitness. I've made that part of my identity. I've pursued financial security, apart from God called generosity. The list goes on. Saying yes to practice is hard. Saying no to our flesh, I think, is much, much harder. But saying no is part of cooperating with God in the process of our sanctification. Verse 13 says we're also being trained by waiting for God's return. We're being trained by waiting. This is the future part of our salvation. This is what we are looking forward to. This is the secure hope that we have. And you might think, well, what does it look like to wait today in 2023? What does it look like to wait for Christ's return? Back in Matthew's gospel, the apostles asked Jesus, what's going to be the sign of your return? What, what clues are you going to give us that you're coming back at the end of the age? And Jesus gave them four examples, four parables about how we are to wait. I'll leave those to your careful reading. But here's a quick takeaway. Here's a quick summary. First, Christ's return will be unexpected. Christ's followers 2,000 years ago were sure he was coming back in their lifetime. So we are to wait patiently because we don't know, but we're to be prepared. That's the second thing. We're to be prepared. And we're to be faithful to use what we've been given, the resources that we have as we wait. And the good thing about these three things is this kind of waiting causes us to value Christ above all. Training is waiting, and waiting is training. That's not double-speak, that's not paradoxical. It really is both and. And I know sometimes the Christian life can seem paradoxical. Sometimes it seems like, 
well, God, you're asking us to do this, but it seems like you're saying this. Which is it, God? Because we love absolutes. We love either or, don't we? We love to know that we're on the right side of history, that we're in the right line at the grocery store, right? But God doesn't work like that. So many times he calls us into tension in the Christian life to marry and acknowledge two things that seemingly don't go together. For example, God is both incomprehensible, but he's also knowable. God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. But we still have human responsibility before him. Sometimes God hides things. Sometimes he reveals things. We, each one of us, is both saint and sinner. Which is it? Which is it? For the Christian, there's joy and suffering. How, how can that be? I love the refrain of Chris Tomlin's beautiful song, The Wonderful Cross, because it, it captures this tension. The refrain goes like this. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, bid me come and die and find that I may truly live. How does this make sense? How does dying lead to life? Well, we die to self. That's the cost of our discipleship. And we exalt Christ that we might truly live. That's the benefit. That's the fullness of life in Christ. In today's passage, we have another biblical both and, and it's this. God both saves us, and that gracious call of salvation carries with it his expectation that we're going to live a different life. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, you had a prior life, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And then he says, go live like that's true. Think again with me about our mission statement. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the both and here? We become disciples when we answer God's call to repent, to turn from our sins and place our faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord. That's our justification. Titus 3, 7, that's what makes us adopted children with the hope of eternal life. But also, not instead of, also, making disciples means that we are set apart to proclaim the gospel to others and that with them, we are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our sanctification. The writer of Hebrews warns us not to neglect so great a salvation not to ignore or minimize the work of Christ on our behalf, not to minimize the fact that he is actively living in us. And this great salvation gives us three distinct benefits today. Christ's great salvation, his completed work saved you. You were redeemed, you were purified, you were justified, and in all of this you have been saved from the penalty of sin. Christ's completed work saved you from the penalty of sin. But Christ is actively at work in our hearts and lives. He's training us. We are being sanctified. And so that sanctification means that we are now being saved from the power of sin. We are distancing ourselves from the gravitational attraction of sin. 
So we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And then there's Christ's blessed hope, the promise of his return, when he'll take our glorified bodies to be home in paradise with him forever. And at that time, in that future moment, we will be saved from the presence of sin. No more tears, no more crying, no more longings. We're in his presence, saved from the presence of sin. For the grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's you, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, if you've been watching carefully as we've unpacked these four verses, you'll notice that I've completely missed one part of them. Did you see it? You might be asking, okay, John, what is it that makes people zealous for good works? It's a great question. Paul answers it for us. Three weeks ago, Pastor Dave was preaching in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 14 through 21. This is Paul's heartfelt prayer for the Ephesians that they would have spiritual strength, that they would know Christ. And in that message, I thought Dave pulled out something profound. He pointed out in this prayer that Paul is asking God to enable believers to comprehend the love of Christ that they already have. He's affirming to them something that's already true. It's already in them and with them. And he's doing this so that they might experience their full life in God. Paul is essentially saying that love is greater than knowledge. So, what's the answer to what makes people zealous for good works? Well, it was in Dave's sermon three weeks ago. It was right there in Ephesians 3.19. The answer to what makes us zealous for good works is, it's this, it's the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ makes us zealous. Knowledge doesn't make us zealous. Knowledge alone doesn't. But the love and the presence and the active participation of Christ in our life, that makes us zealous for good works. Grace, as I've said a number of times, is God's love in action. It's not a feeling, it's a commitment to act. That's why I so appreciate Del Tackett's definition of love. Here's what he says. He said, love is the sacrificial zeal to pursue the true good of another. Love is the sacrificial zeal that gives up of itself to pursue the true good of another. Doesn't that embody Christ's life-saving work for us? So when I say sacrificial zeal, what does that make you think of? Maybe a wide receiver giving everything he can to make an impossible catch. Maybe a group of firefighters running into a burning building. Maybe a mom chasing after a toddler that's about to break out into the street. Maybe it's a missionary in a lonely outpost laboring to put together God's word in a native tongue so that people who have never heard of the love of Christ can hear about it in their own language. This love, this sacrificial zeal caused Christ to die for us. 
led him to somehow a joyful obedience to the Father's call to die on the cross. Friends, this love means that you don't have to live your life shackled to the past. You don't have to be a victim of the hurts you've experienced, the bad decisions that you've made. You have a new identity. Hear me. The past is gone. The present is here and the future is before us. We are a new creation in Christ. We don't have to walk with a spiritual limp. We are whole in Christ. We are new in Christ. You have more than fire insurance. Christ is in you. But Christians, you've got to believe it. You've got to value it. You've got to act as if it's the most true, the most important, the most necessary thing in your life. That's what the call to discipleship is. And then you must walk in a manner worthy of the call of the gift and the giver. That's the cost he asks us to pay. It takes training. It takes pers perseverance and practice. To be, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind is not an easy thing. We have to put off the old. We have to put on the new. We have to practice dismissing the woe is me thoughts and replace them with Christ is in me thoughts. You see the difference? When thoughts of I'm not good enough or how could Christ ever forgive me, when they flood your mind, you have the power in Christ to take those thoughts captive and to think about what is true and lovely and commendable about the person and work of Jesus Christ who is with you, who loves you, and who's never going to leave you or forsake you. What you think, what you come to believe and value drives what you do. The love of Christ changes the way you think and act. Do you love Christ this morning? Is he your savior? If he's not your savior, if you're not certain, would you turn to him now? Would you tell him you're sorry for your sins and ask him to come and give you this new life that I've been talking about? Will you run to him in prayer? He will meet you. Do you love Christ this morning? Is he your Lord? Are you willing to ask him to train you, to teach you, to make you faithful and obedient to his call and to his word? I pray that you are. I pray that together we will encourage one another him to follow him, whatever the cost, for his grace is sufficient. Let's pray together. God, we ask you today to apply these truths to our heart. We ask you to make your priorities our priorities. We ask you to help us obey you whatever the cost. We thank you for your patience in training us. And we ask that we would be renewed in mind, spirit, and life, and that we would reflect the glory that we have as a precious gift from you. Thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.